Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the First Port Podcast. This episode has been recorded on Monday the 14th of November. My guest today is Derek Mooney and no, it's not that Derek Mooney, the nature program guy. This Derek Mooney is a fellow podcaster and blogger and while he writes mainly about the politics across Ireland and in Brussels, Derek also writes a lot about Irish defence policy. An interest that goes back to his time as a special advisor to the Minister for Defence in the early 2000s. Derek is a frequent guest on RTE shows and was most recently heard on Late Debate and This Week programme. Welcome Derek. Can I start off by asking you about your time as a special advisor to the Defence Minister and can you tell us briefly what does a special advisor do? Thanks, Dave. Listen, it's great to be part of the podcast. My husband is listening regularly. It's a, it's a superb show. Special advisor is one of those things that people kind of know what we do, but they're, kind of, they're also kind of uncertain about what it is. They just know that somebody who works for a minister. And there is no set definition of what a special advisor does. Primarily, you're there to advise the minister on policy. Every minister has two. They have one who specializes in communications, who will be effectively their media spokesperson, and the other one who would be on policy. And the policy one is what used to be called a programme manager. So you're there to assist the minister in the implementation of the programme for government in that department. It's, it's, it's a wide range and it depends what your relationship with your minister is. In some cases, the special advisors are policy experts who are brought in to deal with, to assist and to advise the minister, to give them kind of external, internal advice. So the department is your prim- primary advisor on policy, but you'd like to have an outside opinion or somebody who has access to other thoughts and other opinions and other sources of, of information. So in my case, I was a political person. I had been the minister's campaign manager. I had run very, I had been running election campaigns for years. I had more a background on security and I had been involved in stuff around Northern Ireland and Northern Ireland policy from just before the Good Friday Agreement to afterwards. So that's why I came into it. So I came into the, the Department of Defence not as a policy expert, but very quickly had to learn uh, the rigs of it. And when we were in the Department of Defence, we were just a couple of years after the implementation of what became known as the White Paper on Defences. And that was the big modernisation programme of the Defence Forces. Sounds interesting, Derek. Now, I suppose being an advisor to the Minister, you would have gone on some foreign trips as well, you know, just to see how things are done elsewhere. And, and can you- can you tell us about, you know, maybe some of the travel and, and some of the decisions that you've been involved in throughout your, your career as a special advisor? Yep. I was there from approximately 2004 to 2010. And during that time, Ireland was stepping up. Like Ireland had had a strong record in peacekeeping and has had for a good 50 years before that. I think it was 1955 was the first. It's when we joined the United Nations in 1958 was the first uh, UN mission that Ireland participated in, which in, it was in Syria. So at that point, we were in Chad, Lebanon, Liberia, and then we had smaller uh, postings elsewhere. So in average, in an average year, at the time, the Defence Forces had about 10,500 members. And in any given year, about 1,600 troops would have served overseas in any given year. That would be 800 at a time. You would tend to go on six monthly rotations. So somebody would do six months abroad, then they'd be back. And then in about two years' time, you had to do at least one overseas mission if you're a member of the Defence Forces every three years. 
Um, so it was a very, very active time. The numbers are considerably down now. So we, we were there. I had gone to Chad. I had gone to Lebanon. We had troops in Kosovo. We had troops stationed around the place. But they were the, they were the three main trips I had gone to. I had gone to Kosovo, where we were located there as part of the after the breakup of Yugoslavia. And after then, the, the, the battle between Bosnia and Herzegovina on one side and Serbia on the other. Part of Bosnia had declared UDI, Universal Declaration of Independence, from Bosnia. It was a Serb part of it, a Republic of Serbska. And so we had actually gone there to where Ireland was overseeing the map monitoring the ceasefire. The most important, probably the most significant mission I went to see was the one in Chad. Chad mission was a United Nations mission. Hadn't gone on for terribly long, but it was related to the, the famine in Darfur in South Sudan. And the famine had dislocated about a quarter of a half a million people. Many of the refugees had set up in camps just inside Chad. Chad at the time was second or third poorest country in the world and was struggling to cope with this. And what you had is that the various United Nations and uh, global organizations had set up refugee camps inside Chad. But the Chadian government was very nervous that this would become a source of difficulty for them. And Chad was ruled by a dictator. He wasn't exactly a benevolent leader. It was Debbie. The, the Irish troops were there as part of a mission. There was 450 located in Chad and they were patrolling an area roughly half the size of France. So we were there on the ground. We travelled in. Uh, Ireland was basically running the UN camp there. It was providing the, the logistics for the headquartered operation. The, the commander of the mission uh, overall was an Irish general, Pat Nash. So this was the first... UN mission that Ireland had full command over. So it was a significant achievement. The other thing you did when you were, you would attend UA, EU defence ministers meetings, um, which would be held usually in Brussels, but there would also be informal meetings which would be hosted by various countries during their EU presidency. So it was a fascinating uh, area. Because Ireland has a different outlook on defence than most of the European countries, it's only really Austria and Cyprus who are the other two formerly militarily neutral countries within the EU. Um, a lot of the time at these EU meetings, spend your time explaining to the, your European colleagues why we would have certain issues and why, but we had reservations about some missions. Having said that, once there was a United Nations mandate in place, we had no difficulty participating in missions, and that's a core element of what we call the triple lock here. I think you, um, you know, mentioned neutrality and everything, and you know, given given current events, given your defence background, what are your thoughts on the Russian-Ukraine war? And I know this is a bit of a loaded question added on to that, but is Ireland doing enough on the defence side of things? Should we be sending weapons, and or would that be a breach of our neutrality? Yeah, well, first of all. We use the word neutrality in Ireland rather loosely because we're not a neutral country in the traditional sense of neutrality. We are militarily neutral, and that means we're not part of a military alliance. And that's been the position effectively since our membership of the United Nations. So we joined the United Nations in 1955. Now, we had been vetoed by Russia for several years. But eventually, and I can't remember, there was a specific reason why Russia had vetoed us. We'd recognised somebody that they took exception to in the early stages. So we got in 55 and we immediately started to, as quickly as we possibly could to participate in UN peacekeeping missions. And the rules by which we participate in UN peacekeeping missions is, number one, there has to be a UN mandate in place. This is what we call the triple lock. 
So once the Dáil has approved a motion, once the Cabinet has approved a motion, and once there is a United Nations mandate in place, more than 12 armed Irish troops can serve abroad. That was meant to signify our commitment to the United Nations as the arbiter of international peace and our commitment to what was called multilateralism. So that's why that's where it stems from and that's where it has its origins. I still believe that's a valid position to be in. There are very few missions that we could not have taken that we could not have taken part in over the years. There's one or two, I think there was one in Macedonia because there wasn't a United Nations mandate in place that we couldn't take could participate in it. But for the other part, there's never been an obstacle. We are one of the best contributors at the United Nations peacekeeping over the, those years since 1958. One of the things, the problems is that people turn around and say, yes, well, we should look at being joining NATO because we were part of this when it was in the height of the Cold War, so 58, 60s, 70s onwards. But I do think that's a legitimate issue. Since also our membership of the United, of the European Union, we have a commitment to our European colleagues. So if they are attacked, we have to act as if it was an attack on us. So there's, there are many things within this that, that, that's, that, that we do have latitude around. Um, however, I think the idea of saying, OK, we're going to get rid of neutrality. Well, if we're going to get rid of neutrality, where are we going to provide our defence from? And one of the things that we think we have been very, very errant on, certainly for the last decade, and I've been writing about this for a long time, which is we have been severely under underinvesting in our defence forces and in our defence capacity for well over a decade. The aforementioned white paper that I talked about in 2000, uh, put the defence forces on a solid footing, it put us up to 10,500. Now, before we left office, because of the global economic collapse, because of what we call the board snip newer and cutbacks in government, we did cut the defence forces from 10,500 to 9,500. But that was only ever intended to be a temporary cut. And it was, the, the plan was to reinstate it within once the economy had started to recover. The economy started to recover, you can argue, in 12, 2012, 2013, maybe certainly by 2014. But by 2014, there was no sign of the, this, this 1,000 been reinstated. In fact, that government had made that 1,000 temporary cut permanent. And that was a huge mistake. I think it was a massive error because that 1,000 was never based on any great analysis. It was just cut 1,000. Second part is we have then continued to criminally underinvest in the Defence Forces since then. If we're going to say, oh, we're going to become part of NATO, NATO is 2% of your GDP, which is go on defence spending. We at the moment are somewhere between 0.3 and 0.4. So you'd have to multiply our defence spending by five. The government has announced under the Commission for the Defence Forces that it is basically hoping to double defence spending in the over the next six, eight, ten years. So we're not even started the process of doubling it. And people are starting to talk about joining NATO and multiplying by, by four or five. I think it's a legitimate debate. I think I do. I have no, if somebody gets up and says, I advocate for, for NATO membership. I think that's a perfectly legitimate position to have. But I recognise the, the logic of that position and recognise the capacity there, the need for increased defence spending. But even if somebody says, I argue passionately for neutrality, and even for a more pure form of neutrality, moving from military neutrality to pure neutrality, well, then who's going to provide our defence forces? So no matter which way you argue this, the, the absolute sine qua non, the absolute starting point, is an increased expenditure on defence. And that's, I think, where the, this government has yet to give a signal. It, it brought about the Commission on Defence Forces. The last budget was not bad about allocating funding. 
But I talked about the defence forces went from ten and a half thousand to nine and a half thousand. In real terms, the, the defence forces haven't been anywhere near nine thousand, never mind nine and a half thousand, for the last decade. And there's huge signals now that that it's well no below that. I mean, that's what the Commission of Defence Forces found that we are not capable of providing our own defence, even in a conventional sense. And by the way, the next big threat isn't going to be on land or sea or air. Well, there could always be a threat from land and sea and air. But the biggest single threat to us will be cyber. And our and our cyber defence capacity is virtually nil. And our defence forces, in every other country, the defence forces are a key part of a military-civil approach to maintaining your cyber security. In Ireland, it kind of falls to the Gardaí and there's a minimal role given to the defence forces, although the defence forces are by far the experts in this area. Having said that, as part of the gradual erosion of the skill set in the defence forces, people are finding with, with who have these skills in the defence forces that these skills are hugely commercially viable and they are going to the private sector. So a lot of our cyber capacity that we had in the defence forces a decade ago, or even seven, eight years ago, is now going to the private sector because the private sector is prepared to spend a lot of money paying people a lot more than the defence forces are willing to pay them. So that is going to that's that's going to be the the, the issue I think for the future. I think, and uh, I mean, that, I think that kind of touched on on another question I was going to ask. Can you explain maybe more on maybe why recruitment in the defence forces isn't so attractive these days? You know, and, and what's the retention like? It's just well, retention is is a big problem, which is you you get people in, but keep holding on to them is very very difficult because it's a it's a very, very tough market out there. Once upon a time, finding jobs are difficult, and I'm not saying finding jobs are easy, but companies are, are screaming out for properly qualified and good qualified people, and the Defence Forces has no shortage of those. In its heyday, back in, we say, in the early 2000s, when the Celtic Tiger was roaring, when the economy was absolutely booming, when you had this 8 9% annual growth rate, People are saying, well, you won't get people to join the Defence Forces. Why would they join the Defence Forces when there's so many other jobs on offer? Well, people were joining the Defence Forces because for a lot of people, that's what they want to do. So for every time you had a vacancy, I think this is, I remember looking, I remember doing the figures on this in the mid-2000s. So maybe 2005, 2006. For every vacancy we had as a cadet, there were at least 25 qualified, capable applicants. And for every vacancy we had in what general services recruit, which is coming in as a non-commissioned member of the Defence Forces, there were at least, I think, a seven or eight applications. So there was no difficulty recruiting and there was no difficulty with the quality of the recruits. But the main part is, is that the pay was attractive. The conditions were attractive. The allowances were attractive. One of the things that's happened since then is that a lot of the allowances have disappeared. But they haven't, that, that, the, the money that's lost in that hasn't been topped up in pay. And Defence Forces pay and Defence Forces spending hasn't kept pace with every other department and with every other government. And what's happening is qualified people and the Defence Forces are superb at training. So you join the Defence Forces General Service Recruit, uh, which is basically the old kind of where uh, the uh, Wood Star Private. The amount of training opportunities you have within that to learn a skill, so they be that in engineering, be it in technology, be it in cyber defense, be it in whatever, there's a whole range of skills. Plus the leadership you learn, the, the, the team building skills you learn, the ability to work with other people, the ability to motivate, that's all huge stuff. That's a huge skill base you get. Defense forces are really good at delivering that. 
what's happening is that it makes the people who join even more attractive for other employers after four, five, six years. And the problem is defence forces are not recognising that and not recognising that they're training people up to be really capable and skilled and then not paying them the rate to stay within the defence forces. And that's been the problem with retention. Reten retention is the biggest part of the problem, which is people come in, they are there for a year or two, the two or three years. They, this is the life they chose. This is what they want to do. But they can't do it. When you have people who are on what should be good salaries in the defence forces, who are, play, who are applying for supplementary benefit in some cases to make ends meet, particularly if they've got a young family. It's crazy. And because of the allowances, what is that? Well, after the Good Friday Agreement, after 1998, one of the things we got rid of was border allowance because you didn't have border security details. Now, we didn't get rid of that for, for several years, but that was never replaced. That pay element, which people would have depended on, didn't appear into your basic pay. But you were no longer doing border duties. You were no longer doing cash escort duties, and they were they were the things that topped up your pay. And we haven't replaced those, and we haven't restructured. And that's one of the reasons why I think there was one of the things that the commission did look at was how do you restructure pay? Now, this has to be negotiated out. And by the way, members of defence forces are a separate category, which is you can't be a member of a trade union and be a member of defence forces. Now, there are court cases possibly pending than that. Because that is in, the, in Europe, you can be a member of a trade union, be a member of defence forces. So there's a separate pay and arbitration scheme, and conciliation scheme, operations of defence forces, which is side by side with the national pay talks. But the defence forces don't have the same clout in that; they don't have the same influence, and they're not part of the Irish Congress of Trade Unions. Now, I'm glad to see that the government is moving on that to allow the membership of the Irish Congress of Trade Unions, not because they want to lobby, because that gives them ex that gives them access to the the training that their representatives need to get. There's no point in having very, very skilled negotiators on the defence side of the table and then denying the people on the far side of the table the right or the ability to train themselves up to, to learn the negotiation skills that they need to conduct a negotiation on behalf of their members. So I think that membership of the Irish Conquer Trade Unions will be very important. And I think it will be beneficial for the for the representative organisations. But I think this can be put right. I think it can be done. Problem is, the government is talking a good game about it, but it just keeps dragging its feet. Um, as I mentioned earlier, this Commission on the Defence Forces really produced an excellent report, and it told itself the truth. It was a report that looked at the gaps, it looked at the difficulties, it looked at the problems, it looked how these things have been resolved elsewhere, and it put out a very, very workable blueprint. It came up with what they called three levels, levels of ambition. So level of ambition one was keeping things the way they were and they were saying, look, that's just not feasible. Level of ambition two is basically to return things to the where in terms of st uh, status, in terms of training, in terms of equipment, in terms of capacity to where they were maybe a decade or two decades ago. And that's level of ambition two. The government has basically kind of decided to go to there with a little bit extra. Level of ambition one is where we should be looking to go to. But we shouldn't be looking to do this over 10 years. We should be looking to do this. Sorry, at level of ambition one is actually more than 10 years away, according to the government. I think we should be looking to do that in the next five to six years because it's increasingly seen that Ireland is the weak man in Europe on defence. 
we have some of the most important data cables that transatlantic data cables and for all the talk of the cloud most data still travels along a bit of copper wire and if it's going to the united states from europe it travels along a bit of copper wire that's at the bottom that's on the seabed off the coast of ireland and we haven't the we haven't the capacity to watch that and to maintain it our naval service needs a bigger fleet for the moment naval service is mostly engaged in fisheries protection and some drug interdiction. It does that exceptionally well, but it needs bigger capacity. And similarly with our defence forces, so uh, in terms of the guys in the green uniforms, we need to get back to the days when we were sending 10% of our standing army, which was 8,500, i.e. the guys in the green uniform, on missions overseas. And I think we need to be able to return to that fairly speedily. Absolutely. And and Derek, that's been very insightful you know, on, on, on defence policy and where we are, the, the, the state of affairs with our, um, with our defence resources. At, at the outset of the podcast, uh, Derek, I had mentioned that you are a um, fellow podcaster and blogger. So uh, you, you run a podcast on Spotify. Can you, can you tell the audience uh, the details about that? Yeah. So I just so I just realised that of your last question, the one thing I didn't address was what's happening in Ukraine. And that's a, a very important topic. We are part of a European commitment to deliver money to the Ukraine, and I think we, we definitely are punching our weight in that one. In terms of our capacity to bring uh, Ukrainian refugees here, I think we're, we're, doing our, we're doing our share and an awful lot besides. But I think on the defence side, I think we are sadly lacking. We actually have, sitting in arsenals here, a whole range of weapons, be it SAMs, which are surface-to-air missiles, we have a javelin system, we even have the old-fashioned mortars and other bits and pieces and the rest of it, which we, the old Carl Gustavs and stuff like that. And it's not that we're not using them. We always need to have a certain thing in supply. But we could very easily ship them to Latvia, Estonia, and they could come into to, to, to Ukraine through that. And I think we should, we should have been seriously looking at that. We should have even seriously looked at giving them some of the 85 MOAGs we have, which are the armoured personnel carriers. Um, I think that wouldn't have been that in my view there was no breach of our uh, military neutrality it wouldn't have been a, a breach of the defence acts because it was in pursuance of the United Nations mandate and then we are entitled to do what we need to do in pursuance of the United Nations mandate so I can say I, I think we should have been doing that I still think it's not too late to do that the, the simple fact is we're a small country who used to sit beside a much bigger neighbour who wasn't always the best neighbour possible. So we should have some historical solidarity with Ukraine. It is in all our interests across Europe. Like we've seen that Putin invades Ukraine. There was a threat of a serious grain shortage several months ago, which is why bread prices went up. And now we have Putin switching off the gas supply to Europe. And although we don't get our gas directly from the from Nord Stream, it has a knock-on effect. So now we see our fuel prices shooting up. So we have a vested interest as an economy, as a country, in Ukraine uh, withstanding and repelling uh, Putin. And it is, by the way, this is just truly extraordinary. Uh, we're talking at a time when Kherson has been um, liberated, when Ukrainians have pushed back a lot of the, the gains made by the Russians since last March. And we, okay, we're probably into a fairly deep, dark winter. 
and there will be not much movement over the, the winter months, but Putin will be looking to regroup and to start his aerial campaign again. Now, I think he's, I think he has suffered huge losses and I think he does have a big, big problem. But we should not be in any doubt that Ukraine faces a tough, tough winter because one of the things Putin has been trying to do is um, recognizing that his quick win in Ukraine wasn't possible and his mad dash to Kiev never succeeded. That he is looking to slowly but surely dismantle uh, Ukrainian infrastructure. And even if the small amount of weapons we have might only hold it up for another, even an hour, maybe two hours, whatever it was, I think we should actually be strongly looking at doing that. And um, we are right to send humanitarian aid and the money we don't send in military support, we send in humanitarian aid so it's not a question of budgeting um, and in fairness I do think I think the minister has said that we are looking at delivering training capacity because one of the great areas of expertise for the Irish Defence Forces is explosive devices in its disarming and particularly what they call IEDs which is improvised explosive devices that we are one of the best in these roadside bombs the rest is we have literally a world class expertise in tackling them partly gained from our experience on this island and roadside bombs along the border and all that etc but in terms of where we went to be it in Lebanon Liberia Chad we were seen to be the people who were best capable of our kind of uh, dealing with explosives and dealing with these homemade bombs etc so with it, it, it the idea that we would be helping Ukraine on that what I think is a is a, is a very very positive mood as for my own podcast and what I do and stuff like that, most of it is, I mean, I'd like from time to time, I do go on to defence policy and I realise it's, it's a little while since I've done a podcast on defence policy and I'm probably spurred on by this and we'll probably look to do it again shortly. Uh, but most of the things I just look at is generally what's happening politically in Ireland, a little bit, a good bit on what's happening in the North because over the years I've been involved in a lot of stuff in Northern Ireland and particularly in Belfast. And... Uh, my work also takes me a long time to Brussels so it's kind of a European Dublin Belfast focus my last few ones have been about where the government is going to end up looking at the rise of Sinn Féin and look I, I, I think it's far too early to be calling the next election when it's well, probably two years away and one of the things that's absolutely clear over the last few months is that Sinn Féin is consistently around the mid-30s in the polls Fianna Fáil is consistently in the high teens, maybe hits 20 now and again, which is three or four points below where it was at the last general election. And Fine Gael is consistently at 21-22%, which is roughly where it was at the last general election. So in those circumstances, sorry, the next election is probably going to be a very, very hung and very, very tight election. And I think it's important to look at the issues leading up to that, especially housing, but a whole range of other issues as well that I, I, I touch on from time to time. So you can get that on Mooney on Politics by doing a search on that. My principal platform is Spotify, but I'm also on po Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, whatever the other ones are called, uh, Acast and one or two others, etc. And if you just do a search for Mooney on Politics, my podcast should come up fairly quickly. So that's where you'll find me regularly. And I think you'll probably even have a link included to my podcast with, with this one. Absolutely, Derek, and uh, nobody knows, like yourself and myself, uh, it, it's, it's quite hard to uh, kind of commit to doing a very regular podcast, 
I suppose I'd, I'd just like to thank you for being on on my podcast this week, this month even. Um, but there are uh, two episodes uh, which you covered, I think, back around the springtime about you know the the level of crime in Dublin and the infrastructure. So I I, I think at some stage in the near future, I'd I'd love to have you back and yeah, we could discuss that a little bit more. Absolutely, we're happy to do that because I think it is a huge issue. And it's one of those issues where I, it's amazing. You talk to people and chat to people and everyone's knows somebody who's either been attacked on the street in Dublin or knows somebody who's heard it or even if it's only seen, seen something on social media or seen a video of it. And it isn't just one or it isn't just two. People are becoming too far to wear it. And they're not hearing about this from their, from their political leaders. They're not hearing about this from ministers. They're not hearing about this from others. And that's what causes the disconnect in politics. So certainly we'd be happy to come back and talk to you about it. And you're right, which is being, I think, we're both jobs. Um, Dublin's a great city. It's a fantastic place to live. But slowly but surely, it's grinding to a halt. COVID, I thought, I think, brought a lot of this to the forefront. And when we saw the city hollowed out and emptied out, we realised just how few people actually live in the city centre. And that's not good. Well, there's lots of life around the city when you've got tourists and visitors, etc. But the actual number of people who live there permanently is actually quite low. And seeing the city that quiet during lockdowns was a little bit scary. But I think it also brought home to us what we're missing. And I think we need to be very, very vigilant that public transport is not keeping pace. Our road network is not keeping pace. Our accommodation and our housing is certainly not keeping pace. And how are we going to keep attracting people to work and live in Dublin when, when the view is it's too expensive to work and live here? And businesses are struggling to find people who are prepared to move to Dublin. So it's a huge area. We're not going to cover it in a couple of seconds, but I'd be happy to come back and talk to you again very soon. All right. Excellent, Derek. Well, uh, thank you very much for, for joining. And to uh, Derek and the audience, I want to wish you a very good night and take care. Goodbye. Bye-bye.